are now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Tommy. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Keone of Monad. Keone, how's it going? Hey, doing well. How are you, Tommy? Good, good. How's your week been? It's been uh, it's been good. I'm super excited for this. I think a lot of people get the pronunciation of your project wrong, including myself. So correct it live for us before we dive in. Oh, it's Monad. Okay. All right. That might be the biggest problem I face. <laughs> But it's good. It's our fault. Them. No, no, not at all. So tell us a bit about yourself. You were at Jump. You were focused on high frequency trading. Walk us through a bit of your background. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so I spent eight years at Jump prior to starting Monad. Most of the time was spent on the high frequency trading side in the traditional space, mostly trading futures. It's uh, it's just a space that involves building really high performance systems from scratch. And it's, it's quite competitive because you're building a system that is responsible for reacting in real time to packets coming in from the exchange. And there's a race to make a decision, basically to compute fair values and make a decision about whether to send an order, and then a race to get that order out back to the exchange. So it's, it's very performance oriented and involves building a lot of systems from scratch, which I think was a good kind of backdrop for what we're working on at Monad now. Um, so it's been about uh, seven and a half years on the HFT side, um, led a, a small trading team of about 10 people, um, served as a quant, mostly doing machine learning to make price predictions, and then ended up joining the crypto team at Jump in mid-2021, mostly worked on Solana DeFi while I was there. Um, and then after about six months, uh, decided to leave Jump and ended up starting Monad together with two other co-founders. Can you walk us through a bit about how intricate the work gets at somewhere like Jump, like working on these high frequency systems? Like it, it seems like some serious engineering work that has to be done. Like, you know, the skill set is insane to really optimize those systems. Could you maybe just give us a little bit more color for the, you know, people who haven't done it? Yeah, sure thing. Well, it really starts with measuring everything. So basically taking end-to-end timestamps of packet comes in, order goes out, how fast is that? And then more granular analysis of all of the latency within that system. And it's frequently in in the space that I was in just involved either small cuts to shave off small amounts of latency or every now and then completely re-architecting things to move to a different paradigm where we could potentially save a lot more latency. Some of those bigger paradigm changes are like re-engineering a system to um, reduce the overall amount of computation involved, or perhaps even like involving hardware in, in some of the process. But overall, it's it's a mix of like small steps and big steps. And then I guess I'd also just say it's a system that has to scale because it's a system that for, for most trading shops, you know, they'll be trading hundreds or thousands of different instruments. So they have to build a system that is fast, but also, I guess, generic enough to adapt to a number of different kinds of markets that maybe have different kinds of inputs or listening to different other instruments or, um, all, and ultimately, you know, so it has to be flexible enough to express um, a variety of different configurations. And then even for one, a given instrument that uh, you might be trading, you're, it's not just a matter of using the same model all the time. The model has to be retrained maybe the quants are coming up with new signals or new inputs into that model. And all of that research still has to be producing something that can be computed in a performant manner, like on the order of microseconds. That's awesome. So it sounds like from what I'm hearing from you, it's sort of a trade-off between, do you want to do a lot more steps and have a more like accurate computation? Or do you want to do less steps and have the system act faster and trade faster? Is that like a fair summation or no? Yeah, that's totally right. It's some um, dilemma, I guess, between accuracy and speed, both in terms of complexity of models. Like, you know, if you use a more complicated model that takes more inputs, maybe you can make a more precise prediction. But if it takes longer to, to compute that, then that might not be worth it. And then there's also the, I guess, the dilemma of when you wait longer for more information to arrive, then you could, might be more certain. But if you're waiting longer, then you have, um, you know, you're you're further behind the pack relative to others who might be responding to earlier information. So yeah, there's always, there's trade-offs. Like I know in crypto, we talk about how there's a trilemma between 
decentralization, performance, and security. And I guess like in the HFT space, there is to a certain extent like a similar trade-off, but between accuracy and speed. Yeah, it's crazy. The the dilemma wasn't enough for you. You had to do try 11 now. <laughs> right, is, right. I mean, last question on this topic, but how do you conceptually think through like where you fall on that efficient frontier, right? Like you, you want to act fast, you want to get your trade in, but you want to wait for more info. And on the right side, you want to do more steps so your your trade is more accurate, but you want to do less steps again so it's faster. Like, I, I don't know, like how do you, is it just like performance over time? Is it back testing? How do you land there? It's really a great question. I think in practice, it's it's all just empirical. So, you know, you try a certain complexity of model that has certain latency and then see if that's fast enough to be competitive. And when you see that it's not, you know, both due to the timestamps that you're taking, all this data that you're collecting, and then in addition, the outcome data of, you know, I fired at this liquidity that looked like it was there. Did I hit or did I miss? And sort of like responding to the market feedback to make a decision about whether to adjust the parameterization of the model building process such that it prefers a simpler model that'll thus be faster, even if less accurate. Nice. It gives me hope that there's humans in the machines or at least overseeing them a little right. bit. So you spend all this time at Jump, you're doing really hard engineering work, then you want to move into crypto. What was the shift from one to the other? Yeah. you know, Initially, our team was mostly focused on trading of cryptocurrencies and, and instruments related to crypto, like derivatives on, on centralized exchanges. And then um, just over time, you know, it became clear that that was a, a huge market and there was a lot of stuff to trade and, and there's a lot of opportunity. So our team of about 10 people just ended up merging into the crypto team at Jump, which at the time in, in mid-2021 was, you know, just a, a great group of folks who were trading, but who were also investing in the space and conducting research and acting as builders as well. So that experience was just like, you know, more of a broadening of of our team's experience beyond pure trading into just learning more about what else was going on in the space from the from the builder side or from the research side. I think that was just kind of a natural experience for myself, um, as well as for James Hunsaker, um, my co-founder here at Monad. Um, to just get a better sense of what some of the existing trade-offs in existing systems were and existing limitations uh, in existing systems like Ethereum or Solana. So before the jump to Monad and you know conceptualizing this and, and really running with it, you guys, I'm sure, have had to have looked at everything in the space, like the status of Solana, of Ethereum, of all the L2s, ZK, optimistic rollups, app chains, like you know the whole kind of sphere. I mean, was that process on just the competitive landscape? Like, did you look around there and say, hey, look, you know, nobody's doing what we can do? Or was it more of a, a unique experience for you guys to develop Monad? Like, how did that go given the sea of options we have right now? Well, I think that there, there's a lot of really interesting projects in the space that have different approaches. I think it was, it was kind of becoming clear to us in end of 2021 that there's a lot of effort going into rollups and sort of the fractal scaling approach of building a separate blockchain that just commits some data and commits some um, checkpoints back to L1. There's a lot of you know different projects doing that and a lot of builders in the space focused on that, but it didn't really seem like very many people were focused on execution itself. Like the, the EVM was kind of being treated as a black box in a lot of projects. So I think just you know, whenever you see that something is being black boxed and it's also not that performant, there is probably an opportunity to go and, and and build a much more performant black box. So you land on Monad and your tagline is a high performance Ethereum compatible L1, right? I'd like to double click, I think, on the high performance area there. You guys in your docs, you reference four main technological breakthroughs, right? You have Monad BFT, deferred execution, Parallel Execution, and Monad DB. Maybe let's start with Monad BFT. Like Maybe let's start there and kind of walk through the advancements and we can sort of unpack the benefits you guys bring. Sure thing. Monad BFT is high performance 
pipeline two-phase hot stuff consensus. Hot stuff consensus is generally a family of consensus mechanisms that's linear in the communication method, generally involves um, a rotating leader mechanism where each leader makes a block proposal, sends it out to all the other nodes, all the other validating nodes in the system, and then all the other validating nodes evaluate whether that's a valid block proposal and send their votes on to the next leader. And then, so this fan out, fan in approach kind of is how the communication is linear as opposed to in Tendermint and other systems where there's quadratic communication where all the nodes are talking to each other in order to communicate their votes. And the benefit of a linear system is that it can scale to to many more nodes because with quadratic, when you have 100 nodes, you have 10,000 messages sent. Um, for each round. But if you have a thousand nodes, then that's going to be a million messages sent. Whereas with hot stuff, it's just linear with the number of nodes. In addition to that, Monad BFT features some changes which allow consensus to complete in two rounds of communication instead of three, uh, which is obviously an improvement. And then also features pipelining where block proposals for a new block can piggyback on top of a communication about the previous block's um, votes that are being aggregated into something called a quorum certificate. So there's kind of like a, it's hard to hard to describe it just um, in words, but but a, a piggybacking of two kinds of pieces of information that would otherwise need to be communicated, uh, which also substantially reduces the amount of messaging required. Awesome. So the first technological breakthrough is different consensus mechanism, and from my understanding. And correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like instead of all nodes validating every transaction, you divide this into sort of committees. They propose and validate blocks independently, and that sort of leads to faster transaction processing. Is that fair? Oh, uh, sorry. I probably should have clarified that a little bit better. So in uh, Monad BFT, all of the nodes are just a single committee. Um, So there's no partitioning of, of the nodes or anything like that. It's basically... All of the nodes in in the system at mainnet we expect to be um, on the order of two to three hundred nodes. But anyway, all of those nodes are all participating in the evaluation of each block. Um, so there's one leader, and then like say 199 other validating nodes. But they're all working together, and they're all doing consensus, which is ultimately the job of coming to agreement about official ordering of transactions. Awesome. No, that that's definitely a helpful clarification. I think one other part that we should talk about is just that you went from three rounds to two rounds with Monad BFT. Can we maybe dive into how that works and what the performance gains are from that change? Sure. I guess maybe just to, before we start talking about the intricacies of of consensus, um, I want to talk about an analogy. So if we imagine that there is a commander who has 10 generals who are each commanding one-tenth of the army. And they're all surrounding an enemy that they're about to invade, but they need to coordinate about the specific time at which they're going to launch the attack. There's basically this this problem of coordination. And you could imagine that if the commander sends an order to all of the generals like that says, let's attack at 5 a.m. tomorrow, then each of those generals, upon receiving that message, doesn't have enough information to be confident about launching the attack yet because they need to make sure that all the other generals also have received that message and also have validated it, made sure it's true, and are planning to attack at 5 a.m. as well. So um, basically, the problem of consensus and blockchain is pretty similar because it's not just a matter of a node receiving a block proposal um, and validating it and being like, oh, okay, yeah, this, this looks correct, like the signatures are fine, the transactions within it are correctly formatted, et cetera, uh, because as a validating node, you might have actually received a block proposal that was only sent to you, for example, by a malicious leader who has specifically targeted you to send something that you're going to then ca- then cause you to do something that ends up getting you out of sync with everyone else. So the problem of consensus is basically the problem of, back to my analogy about the generals that are preparing to invade, not only validating that the instruction's correct, but also validating that other people have also received the instruction and are also planning to do the same thing. So maybe just to play it out a little bit further, 
Um, so the commander sends a message to all the generals saying, let's plan to attack at 5 a.m. tomorrow. Then each of those generals has to then take that message and um, sign it with their own signature as well and send it back, I guess, via carrier pigeon back to uh, another, uh, like a secondary commander who basically aggregates all of those signatures and then, you know, packages them together and sends, you know, copies of all those signatures back out to everyone else, to all the generals again. So when all those generals, when each general now receives that package of signatures, at that point now, they know that the other generals received the original message and have validated that it was valid. And so the only tricky thing here is that now, if you're one of those generals who just received that signature pack, you still have a problem, which is that you might be the only person who received the signature pack. And because no one else has received that signature pack, they're not planning to invade yet because they can't be confident yet, thus going to go ahead and invade. But you end up being the only person that actually ends up doing the invasion. And you, you get cut down because you, there weren't enough attacking forces to overwhelm the enemy. So I think what this analogy gives you is a flavor of the challenges of coordination among many parties that are not sure about uh, whether each other party is in the same status, that they're all that all parties are planning to move ahead with that commander's original proposal, um, which is exactly the same problem that blockchains have um, or that nodes in a, in a blockchain have. And I'll spare you the details of how we went from three rounds of communication to like achieve that consensus where all the generals are sure that they can now invade to moving to two. Um, but I'll just you know, say really briefly that it involves introducing a fallback mechanism where, you know, if the generals get into a bad state where they haven't received a block proposal, then they can still communicate with each other enough to fall back to a state where they're all confident. But yeah, I'll pause there and um, see if you have any other questions, Tommy. No, I think the analogy is is super helpful. And the fallback mechanism is it's definitely beyond me because I'm not super technical. But I think what you're saying is that if these generals get this final set of instructions on, on when to attack, if they're not sure if they're the only ones that didn't get it, they could sort of, I think, gossip between themselves to ensure that they all have the same information. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good summary of the fallback mechanism, actually. So it's in a situation, in the normal case, the generals are just communicating linearly with the commander. But if there's a fallback situation, then they can they have a way to communicate amongst themselves to kind of like signal distress. Cool. And so we're on the first kind of technological breakthrough that you guys cover in your documents. I hate to ask you to put like a number on this specific improvement, but are there any sort of metrics you can share on the performance increase that you get from this specific improvement? Yeah, I think the way to think about consensus is that consensus is half of the problem of overall running a blockchain, um, the other part being execution. And it's basically a requirement of any system that both the execution and the consensus can keep up with each other. Basically, the slower of the two will end up becoming the bottleneck. So with Monad BFT, with the configuration that I mentioned of two to 300 nodes globally distributed, like not just having all the stake weight all um, in the same continent or something like that, globally distributed, Monad BFT can carry data, which allows over 10,000 transactions of full Ethereum transaction throughput um, such that consensus can keep up with the execution capabilities of Monad. That's awesome. That's a hell of a summary. So walking through the next innovations here, we have paralyzed execution, or that might be third. I'm jumping around a little bit, but let's go there. I mean, paralyzed EVM seems like it's all the rage on crypto Twitter recently, you know, executing transactions in parallel, things that don't conflict, shouldn't have to wait for each other. Walk us through this development. I think the first thing to know about parallel execution is that the job of parallel execution is to build a black box execution system that produces the same end result as if those transactions had been run in parallel. Sometimes people worry that when they hear about the parallelism, that somehow that'll result in transactions that are being run in parallel, like conflicting with each other and like, you know, throwing each other off, that cannot happen. In this parallel execution that um, we've built at Monad, the requirement is that it always produces the same result as if the transactions were just run 
one after the other, the way that they're ordered in the block. The parallelism is all just there as an optimization under the hood. Now, diving into a little bit deeper, optimistic parallel execution ultimately is the process of running many transactions in parallel as if they were starting from, as if the global state were starting from the same point, and then uh, basically generating a bunch of pending results, each of which makes note of the inputs and outputs of that transaction, i.e. the the state variables that were read in or uh, written out to in the course of running that transaction. And then Monad takes those pending results, which were generated in parallel, and commits those pending results serially, like in the same original order that the transactions were defined in. So you can think of it as sort of a two-phase process, where the first phase is running a bunch of transactions in parallel, generating pending results. And then the second phase is stepping through those pending results one by one and committing them and the part that I didn't say, which is the really important part, is if there is a pending result, one of whose inputs has since been invalidated, then rescheduling that work and re-executing that work for that transaction prior to committing any other pending results. Got it. And in your docs, I think something that helped me a bit, but I'm still not totally clear on it, is that in the scheduling section, you said that the dependencies between transactions or determining the dependencies between transactions ahead of time allows you to avoid the wasted effort. Could we maybe double click on that? Like, how do you figure out the dependencies between transactions, but still have high speed? Like, doesn't that take a lot of time to figure out if two transactions conflict? Yeah. In Monad's optimistic parallel execution, there is no pre-specification of dependencies. So all of the determination of dependencies is just done at runtime during that first process that I mentioned where all those transactions are being run in parallel. So actually a good way to think of optimistic parallel execution is that it's a two-phase process where the first phase is running all these transactions in parallel and surfacing the dependencies for each one of them. And then you know the process of surfacing those dependencies means going to generally to SSD to read those values off of disk and pulling those values into cache. And then the second phase of that parallel execution, where those pending results are being either immediately committed if um, none of the inputs have changed prior to commit time, or re-executed, that re-execution loop is then like rerunning that that particular transaction. But at that point, the dependencies for that transaction are generally in cache. So that re-execution is generally quite fast. So I think that's actually a really, I'm glad that you asked about that because it's really important to understand that the optimistic parallel execution, in order for this to be like a significant speed up relative to just running the transaction one after the other, it has to be the case that all those transactions running in parallel that are each you know, in the process basically surfacing dependencies and pulling data from SSD that data pull from SSD has to be really fast, and it has to be able to pull many dependencies in parallel, um, which actually is a great segue to um, talking about MonadDB, which is uh, a from scratch database that the Monad team built that's specifically optimized for this problem of when you're running many transactions in parallel and they're all pulling data from SSD, those data pulls can't like block each other. They can't step on each other's toes it has to be possible to pull all of this data in parallel. And so MonadDB is basically a significant improvement um, from the perspective of raising the, the data throughput of this, this state that's stored on SSD so that then the parallel execution can be performant. That's a hell of an answer. So let me give it back to you so I, I make sure I understand it because I get to ask you these dumb questions. But the parallelized execution basically people are not saying, oh, this is an NFT transaction or, or this is a DeFi transaction at, at some surface keyword type level. Basically, you guys are, are figuring out like through data every transaction that could potentially conflict with each other. And you're running those transactions in parallel if, if they don't conflict. And the process of checking on the conflicts and running it is obviously much faster than just running everything in a you know one after another type situation. I agree with with most of that. I guess I should explain like what it means for there to be a conflict because I think that example will give a better sense of like what I mean when I say like rescheduling work. 
So like imagine that there's the first three transactions in the block are the following. The first one is like um, a transfer where I send, I start with 100 USDC in my account and I send 10 to you, Tommy. That would be transaction one. Transaction two is like some unrelated person minting an NFT. And then the third transaction is me sending you five USDC. So if you imagine like those three transactions when they run in parallel, then the first transaction will have an input of my USDC account as 100, and it'll have an output of my USDC account as 90. Okay, because it like started at 100 and I sent 10 to you, so I go from 100 to 90. And then the second transaction would be, I don't know, like whatever that NFT transaction. And then the third one, because it's being run in parallel, so it doesn't know about the first transaction. So that one would also have an input of, you know, my USDC account is 100, and it would have an output of my USDC account as 95, because I was sending you five in that one. And so when we run those three transactions in parallel, we generate these pending results, and then we step through the, the pending results one by one to commit them. So first we would get to pending result one, you know, that would be fine, we'd commit that. Then we'd see pending result two, that's fine, so we commit that. Then we get to pending result three, and we see that the input for that one is 100, but now like, you know, my account USDC is no longer 100, it's now 90. So this transaction would be invalidated, and this would trigger us to re-execute that, that third transaction only. Okay, I'm definitely following. The example was very helpful. And just to parlay that to the new database, the new database is a significant improvement because you're able to... Sorry, let's click there again. Yeah, yeah. So the, the reason that this is the database is helpful is because when we were running transactions one, two, and three, you know, transaction one had that, you know, my USDC account as an input. So we have to go pull when executing that transaction, we're gonna have to go pull that like piece of state from SSD. And then when executing transaction two, like say that's minting an NFT. So we're gonna have to pull like some certain, um, you know, pieces of state from SSD again. And like the same for all the other transactions we're executing in parallel. And, you know, it's just, in order for that parallelism to actually make a difference relative to just running those transactions one after the other, it has to be the case that the database supports parallel access so that when all these, you know, like CPU steps are running in parallel and they're occasionally making pulls to the database, those pulls have to be able to be able to run in parallel and return data in parallel. Got it. Okay. And we have one last tech improvement to cover. And then I think we could talk like implications, what this means for developers and sort of the end result. But I forgot to ask about the last tech breakthrough. Uh, let's go there and then we can circle back. Yeah, sounds good. So the last tech breakthrough is what we call deferred execution or sometimes asynchronous execution. They're, they're the same thing. But uh, basically, maybe to start to describe this one, I'll give you a little bit of data. So Ethereum produces a block every 12 seconds, but the approximate time budget for execution in an Ethereum block is about 100 milliseconds, which is only 1% of the total block time. And the reason why it's only 1% of the block time rather than like the whole block time or a significant portion of the block time is because consensus is expensive. Consensus involves nodes from around the world talking to each other, multiple rounds of communication. So it really is the case that in that block time, most of the block time is actually going to be spent on consensus. So there's actually a very small sliver of time that can be spent on execution. And in most blockchains, including Ethereum, execution is a prerequisite to consensus. Like the nodes can't come to consensus until they've each executed that list of transactions that was in the block. So you kind of get the situation where actually, you know, the time budget for execution is only a small fraction of the total time, um, which then really limits the overall execution throughput of the system. So, you know, when I said like only 1% of the block time is allocated on average for execution, it's like reminiscent to me of how people say that you only use 10% of your brain, which I think is actually like, you know, just probably an anecdote or something or like the denominator has a lot of supporting tissue in there or something um, in the case of using 10% of your brain. But you know, people always say like, what if you could use 100% of your brain? What if you could take the limitless pill? And I, I think that kind of the same thing is true here in Monads. So deferred execution is basically the idea of moving execution out of the hot path of consensus into a separate swim lane so that 
100% of the block time on average can be allocated to execution. Um, and the way that, you know, the sort of implications of that are nodes come to consensus about the official ordering of transactions in a block, um, but they don't have to have executed that list of transactions prior to doing that. Um, and then, you know, in Monad, we just tweak certain things so that it's still, you know, safe for all of these nodes to have this property of not executing before coming to consensus. We introduced something called a delayed Merkle root, which is like basically a, a lagged version of the Merkle root of the state tree in each consensus block. And then also like as soon as nodes come to consensus, then they kind of do two things in parallel. One is they start consensusing on the next block. And the other thing is they start executing that, that list of transactions that they just agreed upon. And so by doing this, it massively raises the time budget for execution, which is one of you know several reasons that are stacked on top of each other that ultimately allow Monad to deliver much higher throughput. That's awesome. I really liked the description. Can we maybe just double click though? Like if you have in Ethereum, you have most of the time budget for consensus, not that much for execution. Raising the amount of time you have for execution allows you to like what what is the end implication for users and developers there? And sorry if I, I missed that part. Oh yeah, no worries at all. So in Ethereum, the way that it works is every block has sort of a, a limit in terms of the amount of work that's allowed to be done. Um, so specifically in Ethereum, there's a, a gas budget or what's called a gas budget of 15 million gas per block on average. So that means that you know the block producers, like the the nodes in the system, when they're building blocks, they're only allowed to produce blocks that whose you know transactions, the total amount of work in there, sums up to like 15 million gas on average. And so that 15 million gas is a budget in compute terms, but you know what that translates to on average is like about 100 milliseconds worth of work given the current Ethereum systems capabilities, like the speed of the EVM, the speed of like reading stuff from database, et cetera. So yeah, I guess really what it is, is that for example, if the Ethereum core devs were willing to allocate like on average 200 milliseconds of execution per block instead of 100, then they could raise the gas limit from 15 million to 30 million. And so every block could just have like more transactions on average packed into it, more work could be done. That would then have probably the result that fees would be lower. So I think there are actually some um, discussions going on recently in the crypto space about like whether it would be okay to raise the gas limit, which effectively would be you know, raising the time budget within, you know, from 100 milliseconds on average to say 150 or 200, which would then like allow more work to be done on the Ethereum network. But it's been, I think it was pretty controversial. And then more recently, Vitalik like replied to some Reddit posts saying he thought that would be fine. And so then more recently, it's become less controversial, the idea of raising the gas budget in Ethereum. But even if that were done, it would still be a raise of like 1.5x or maybe 2x at most. So, you know, we'd be going from like on average 10 transactions per second to like 15 or 20, um, which is still kind of a far cry from like the level of demand of all the Ethereum users submitting all their transactions. Why is it so contentious for Ethereum to do that? Yeah, the reason it's contentious is because um, some people in the Ethereum community are worried that if execution is allocated more time, then that's a little bit less time for consensus, which maybe then might cause the probability of some nodes not being able to vote in time to be slightly higher. So, you know, they're worried about like the stability of the network. At these levels, like personally, you know, reflecting on Ethereum and like the way the network is set up and so on, I think it's probably fine to like 2x the gas budget on Ethereum without an issue, but that would be one concern that people might have. And then the other concern that people might have, which is also like a very relevant point, is people are worried about this overall state growth of the system. Um, so right now for context, Ethereum state is about 100 gigabytes. Um, and so people are worried basically that if you allow more transactions to happen, then the state will grow faster. And as the state grows bigger, it actually becomes more expensive in Ethereum using Ethereum's database structure and so on to look up any values in the Ethereum state tree. So basically what it is, it's almost like, you know, analogous to in the real world where people talk about like deceleration and, you know, like we're, we're growing our economy too fast. Like it would be better if we don't grow the economy so fast, we don't like 
burn through so many resources or, you know, have so much like urban growth or have so much population growth or whatever it is, have so much productivity growth. It'd be better to like artificially limit that somewhat. This is kind of what's happening in Ethereum is that the transaction throughput is being limited in order to mitigate concerns about state growth. That's a hell of an answer. I'm so glad you shared that. So I understand why if you double it or time or state bloat happens faster, I had no idea that it gets more expensive because Ethereum's database gets more complex, if I'm following that correctly. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's exactly um, one of the concerns is that, and I didn't really talk about this because I talked about MonadDB, but I didn't talk about it in contrast to like the existing Ethereum state storage systems. But really that's that's like a core difference is that existing, you know, Ethereum nodes, both Go Ethereum, aka Gath, but also Aragon, et cetera, um, they use commodity databases and then embed the Merkle tree structure inside of those databases in different ways. I think the the Go Ethereum database structure in particular, because it's very literal. So the the Merkle tree is you know a bunch of uh, individual nodes that have like children and have values inside of them. Um, that is stored directly in another database. So it means that when you're looking up a value, you're actually having to hit the database like a whole bunch of times just to look up one value. So that obviously means that one lookup is very expensive. And then additionally, as the Merkle tree gets bigger, like is there more nodes in the Merkle tree? That means that the average depth of the Merkle tree also increases. Um, and as that increases, that means there's like even more lookups that are required in order to look up one value. So I think, yeah, it's a complicated topic, but I think the real like dumb summary is that there's just certain ways that data is stored right now. and those ways aren't super efficient. And people actually know about the fact that they're not that efficient, but it means that like, as a result, if we were to raise the throughput and thus allow the state to grow more, then that efficiency would burn us even more um, as an Ethereum community. So therefore, like, we're trying to limit the growth by limiting the throughput. That's awesome. That's a great description. I'm glad you shared it. And maybe going back a minute, you said that in your design, you have a lot more time for execution. And I understand what that means for low cost, lots of transactions. On the other side of that, is there a room or an argument that you can do more complex transactions or is it, yeah, because you have the more time? Yeah, that that's right. It's, it's either many more transactions or transactions that are much more complex. There's not really a differentiation between those two generally. Like there's just more capability to do a lot more work in aggregate whether that's cut up into like many tiny transactions or a bunch of chunkier transactions that are chunkier than what happens right now in Ethereum. Okay, cool. All right, so we got through the tech upgrades that you guys are implementing, and I appreciate you you answering my dumb questions as I learned through it, but hopefully helpful. Let's sum up what this delivers. Like on a transaction basis, on a price basis, on a decentralization basis, like where do these all come together and deliver the system? What, what do the developers see? What do the users see? Yeah, the ultimate result for users is that transactions on Monad are much, much, much more plentiful and more complex transactions are much cheaper. So the end result is that all transactions are much, much cheaper relative to how expensive they would be either on Ethereum or on existing L2s. So just maybe to put some numbers on it, like a Uniswap V2 swap, um, which the complexity of which is 100,000 gas. Um, that, you know, typically is like 5 to $50 on Ethereum mainnet. I think actually I was looking at it today and it was like 60 ish dollars because the gas price was, was super high due to, I think, like ERC-404s or something. But anyway, 5 to $50 on Ethereum mainnet. And then on existing L2s, still 10 cents to several dollars, depending on what's going on on Ethereum mainnet. With Monad, that same kind of transaction will be a fraction of a cent. So it's orders of magnitude, you know, like 100x cheaper or, or more than um, existing L2s, which ultimately allows the system to scale to many more users and to charge each user much less to, to do their transactions. That's really helpful. I think we can start to get into some fun questions here for the rest of the podcast, hopefully a, a bit lighter, but maybe one that's semi-technical is that you guys are leading with, I believe, full EVM compatibility. Uh, so developers can can take their existing applications and sort of move them over in a very easy manner. 
Is that true? And and I guess if so, why why the focus there? Yeah, Monad is fully um, bytecode equivalent with Ethereum, meaning that you could take any existing smart contract, like the compiled bytecode, and transport it to Monad without any changes. That's really important because uh, right now, almost all developers are building in Solidity or Viper. They're building for the EVM. Almost all TVL, I believe 97% of all TVL in crypto is in EVM applications. And so there's just this really strong network effect for the EVM. But at the same time right now, developers kind of have to choose between portability, i.e. using the common standard that everyone is using with EVM and performance. And Monad can deliver basically the best of both worlds for these developers. So there's some flavors of EVM compatibility that I'm not totally exact on. Like it seems like some projects claim full compatibility, some claim like semi-compatibility. Is, <laughs> is that true? How do you think about that? Is that true? Yeah. So when you asked if Monad was EVM compatible, I gave you a very precise different word, which was EVM equivalent. So EVM equivalence mean is actually a stronger statement than EVM compatible in the whatever like weird nomenclature that we've agreed upon as an industry. Um, so EVM equivalent means that the, all the like same bytecode when run in the new environment will run exactly the same. So it's like the highest standard of EVM compatibility is actually EVM equivalence. There's like other, in other situations, I think specifically with um, ZK EVMs where like not all the bytecode, not all the opcodes are supported or like the outcome can be different under certain circumstances. And the reason you know, very high level why that is, is because each of those opcodes is being emulated as a circuit. And some of those circuits, some of those bytecodes are really hard to emulate as circuits. So, you know, with Monad, like Monad is really performant, not because of zero knowledge, not because of circuits, but because everything's been rebuilt from scratch in C++ and Rust with performance in mind and introducing these architectural improvements. But the bytecode itself, like, is like kind of straightforward and behaves the same way. So there aren't really any concerns about EVM equivalence in Monad. So the sell for developers, unlike some other projects, is that, hey, you can move this over very quickly. You don't have to change much. You don't have to worry about transactions potentially failing or, or giving you results that are you know different from what you expect on Ethereum. So very easy developer onboarding experience. Exactly. Because I think if there's any difference, if there's any possible difference, then it introduces the concern that you know, that difference might be the, you know, the cornerstone in what actually becomes a giant hack. So, you know, like any asterisk, like any difference would be a significant cause for concern, would probably cause you as a developer to need to get your code re-audited. Like, it, it's basically just, you know, a, a big headache to have to worry about. And so, you know, it's it's not just like the inconvenience of like, oh, someone might submit a transaction and it might, you know, it might not work the same way or it might fail. Like it's literally possibly the difference between solvency and a giant hack. So that would be like the reason why having the highest standard of EVM compatibility, which is EVM equivalence is really important. Yeah, it's ironic and and horrible to think through a project moving to a new L1 or an L, a new L2 for higher speed or lower cost just to get hacked because they had to convert their project. It's, yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that happened actually like a couple of months ago. There was some, uh, I think there was, yeah, there was a project that moved to like ZK Sync or something and the transfer function worked a little bit differently and that ultimately resulted in a hack. So one of my other questions for you is just on the decentralization side, right? A lot of the times when I talk to founders about software improvements or hardware improvements, there is this sense of, centralizing forces to to sort of achieve those trade-offs. And I think you and I just walked through a lot of the software optimizations that you guys are doing, which it's a real upgrade. But I'd love to kind of talk through the decentralization for you guys, maybe under the guise of, you know, what are the lowest requirements to, to audit the network? Can people all around the world take part? Like, you know, where are the bottlenecks? I think that would be really helpful. Yeah. Decentralization is really important to us. You know, if it's not decentralized, then then what's the point uh, is honestly how we feel. And decentralization for us means at least two major factors. The first one would be the cost to run a node that fully validates all the transactions and maintains up-to-date state. And having very reasonable hardware costs is a hard requirement for decentralization. The other aspect is the kind of network that can be supported 
i.e. the number of nodes that can participate in consensus and full geographic distribution of those nodes. So just to zoom in on it a little bit, um, with Monad, Monad's hardware requirements are um, pretty minimal. They're close to the Ethereum hardware requirements. One change is that I think Ethereum right now requires 16 gigs of RAM. Monad requires 32 gigs of RAM. So it's a little bit more, but still a lot less than the 256 gigs of RAM, for example, that Solana requires. And the way that Monad is able to achieve this while delivering really high performance is because of MonadDB. Because MonadDB is basically allowing the nodes to utilize the SSD much more efficiently and to retrieve a lot of information from those SSDs efficiently. The other part that I mentioned with respect to decentralization, like the node count and node distribution, yeah, Monad um, at mainnet will support two to 300 nodes. You know, We think that that's a high number of nodes that make sure that block production and validation is quite decentralized, and then over time will continue to make the node count even higher. Um, one thing that I really don't like to see is blockchains that have like a very small number of nodes, um, and especially blockchains where, you know, more than two thirds of the stake weight is basically located very close to each other, because that's a way of solving for like a lot of the really hard problems just by like, you know, having all the nodes kind of be in the same data center. Because you can solve for a really fast block time, or you can solve for like, you know, very high throughput of uh, consensus or something like that if the nodes are very close to each other. Um, but it's very much putting a huge finger on the scale and doing that. I think that's great context. I, I agree with you. As we trend closer to like being in a data center and everyone there, it's why even run the system, right? If, if it's completely centralized on that spectrum, it's not worth it. I mean, just a clarifying question. You mentioned two to 300 nodes at the start. Is there a way for like retail or actors at large to audit the network or, or run a node type? And I think you may have mentioned it, but I'm, I'm not sure if there is an avenue there. Yeah. So just to be clear, um, two to 300 nodes participating in consensus directly, meaning that they're, you know, have sufficient stake weight so that they're producing blocks and voting on all the blocks. But then even beyond that two to 300, anyone can run a full node that listens to the consensus traffic and executes all the blocks, executes all the transactions, keeps everything up to date. So, you know, there's no limitation on the number of full nodes. The comment is just about validating nodes that are participating directly in consensus. Okay, got it. And I'm assuming all the normal things apply. If, if a node acts maliciously, they get slashed, somebody else moves up in the queue. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Okay, awesome. I think that's really helpful. So I guess just zooming out, like taking a very long, you know, let's say 25 year view here, it sounds like what you're building, and I know people don't like to be contentious because it's like EV negative in crypto, but it's helpful to level set. It sounds like what you're building could eventually replace a lot of the blockchains that we're, we have today if you're successful. is. Do you believe in a many blockchain world? Do you believe in a thousand roll-up world? Do you believe in a you know a single roll-up or chain to roll them all? Like, like What is your, your more nuanced views here? Yeah, I think that Right now, we're still in a very early stage where a lot of different technology is being prototyped and we're still solving sort of fundamental problems. I feel like MonadDB is a fundamental solution to a fundamental problem. And there are you know, several other things like that. It's hard to you know, fully predict what the landscape will look like. I guess if I had to take a stab, I would say it might be similar to how like in the cloud computing space, you have Amazon, or you know, AWS, you have Google Cloud, you have Microsoft Azure, you have like Ali Cloud, maybe a couple of other ones. So I think it'll probably be a situation where there's like five to 10 really major um, smart contract blockchains. But I mean, in crypto, there's also probably the longer tail just because there's so many very vibrant communities that are each very passionate about the specific network and specific network effects of the apps and users that are on a particular environment. So probably like skew a little bit higher than that. Are you worried at all about, you know, let's call them your competitors taking, you know, the, the really solid work that you guys have done? I mean, everybody always says like, oh, we could just fork that. But I think that misses the nuance of it's really hard to upgrade existing communities with with new code. And two, you really have to be a master in, in what you're building. You can't just sort of take it. It'll because you'll come with all the bugs and stuff, you know? Yeah, I agree with all the things you said. I think that the network effects of an existing network are substantial and you can't fork out the state, you can't fork the network, you can't fork the community. 
But I mean, I think also it's just important for any new blockchain to be doing something that's unique and different that's contributing back to the space. Like it's also like we shouldn't attribute a lot of value to something that's a pure fork because um, it's not necessarily like pushing the boundaries overall forward. And while we're on comps, I mean, I'd love to get your take. I mean, you're you're intimately aware of of what Solana has built, um, and yet decided that this would be a better path for you and your time and and what you can achieve. I'm curious, like, was there any time where you're like, you know, hey, I'd just rather go build something on Solana, or was it, you know, a pretty core decision to go here to build this? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, what the Solana team has done and what the Solana community has has evolved into. Um, I think that with Monad, we just could see that there was a huge need for really performant EVM and it didn't seem like anyone was really working on this. So it made sense to focus very deeply on this problem. Yeah, no, I, I definitely understand that. I guess like if I had to put the, the two cents together there, it sounds like you guys are of the opinion that EVM has sort of won with developers and liquidity and apps, but Ethereum is not serving those apps as efficient as possible. So you guys are there for that. I don't know, maybe a brief summary. I think that the EVM is a really powerful standard. I think that people that kind of hate on the EVM on Twitter are, you know, mostly just, you know, giving a sharp opinion because it's rewarded to give sharp opinions. And it's like kind of an easy punching bag. But I think fundamentally, the EVM, you know, a lot of the actual constraints are really more related to like state access and network throughput. And like, those are the fundamental limitations. The actual compute itself is not really the limitation. The opcodes, like that stuff is not really a limitation. So I think it's just, it is the common standard. It's the de facto. There's a huge network effect. There's nothing fundamentally flawed about the VM or the language itself, um, but just people conflate the power, like the capabilities of the specific implementation of the language or of the, the specific implementation of the standard with the standard itself. Yeah, no, it's definitely a spicy take because I, I always see the hate for the, the EVM. And I guess my last question for you is just, you know, you're a very technical, smart, gifted builder, but a lot of your success with this is going to be able, is on the biz and the narrative side and you know, attracting developers to come here, being out there on the business side, you know, being on all the podcasts, you know, like this one, wear those two hats. Like, how do you attract the best new projects to come build here? Yeah, I think that ultimately, like crypto should really just be about supporting entrepreneurs that are building ambitious applications that are trying to take over the world. Um, so everything that, that I do or like everything that my team does, like it's all just be in the service of builders. Um, so when that means building technology to make transactions cheaper, more plentiful, or developer experience better, or user experience better so that user onboarding is easier. Like all that is just to make it easier for people to build applications that become number one on the iOS app store. Um, and then I think on the, for the other stuff that you're alluding to, like building community and like bringing people together, organizing events, organizing hackathons, all, education, like all that stuff, it's all still really for the same purpose, which is just to make it easier to build powerful decentralized apps. And I think that's the unifying thread, whether it's technology or community. That's awesome. Keone, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I, I appreciate you you know, bearing with me on my dumb questions, but I, I'm really glad I got the walkthrough because I, I feel like now I deeply understand you know, what you've built, what you're focused on and your story. So yeah, very excited. As a public disclosure, as, as I have to do as always, definitely an excited angel in your company and project. So I'm very excited for that as well and hope to have you on again soon. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Tommy. Thanks.